The subject of the talk tonight is working with difficult emotions. So being human, we all have a very wide range of emotional life, emotional experience. And some of them are beautiful and quite enjoyable. Love and compassion and joy and elation, and, you know, even calm, neutral as it is. And then some of them are really difficult and take us to an edge. Qualities like fear and shame, anger, loneliness, grief, wanting, despair, self-judgment, humiliation. These are things we don't really want to feel, but sometimes they visit Anyway, and these difficult emotions can be a primary source of suffering in our lives. You know, we may go through periods where life is easy, tranquil, enjoyable, or these may be really frequent companions for us all along the way. But sooner or later, they're going to be visitors for almost all of us. Outside in daily life, life's complicated. There's so many people, so many situations. There's so many facets to what's going on in our life. But here it tends to get simple. You know, there's times when things are going well. And then there's bodily pain. And there's emotional pain. And we need to learn how to work skillfully with both of these. So these times of emotional pain may well come at any point. And it's good if we can learn how to relate. Bodily pain, emotional pain. Oh, then, of course, in meditation, there's also the wandering mind. You know, that's occasionally painful, but that's a first world kind of problem to have. It's not so bad. So, um, usually we want to get rid of these painful emotions. I certainly did when I came into meditation. They started to arise, and I thought, this isn't what I came for. I came to get peaceful. I don't want this stuff. But the resistance doesn't help. That's just more aversion, and it tends to lock them in place. So we really can find another way to uh, work with them, to be with them. And in the process of that, we unfold and discover a lot of strengths that maybe we didn't even know that we had. And in doing that investigation and exploration with them, we can really transform not just our relationship to them in terms of being more welcoming, but we transform the emotions themselves. We transfer how often they come and how strongly they come into our experience. But it begins with really opening to being willing to feel them. This is from Pema Chodron. The basic obstacle is that we don't like the way reality is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run 100 miles an hour to the other end of the continent in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. So with all these emotions, they're part of our human package. They're going to be around in one form or another for probably a long time. So it's really good if we can clarify our relationship to them and come to understand them. This whole field goes into what's called the third foundation of mindfulness. I think Annie gave instructions in this the other morning. The third foundation is called citta in Pali, and it's usually translated as mind, but we often translate it as heart slash mind because the term citta in Pali really includes both um, cognitive aspects of mind, you know, knowledge and thinking, and also affective emotional aspects of mind. They're both together. So neither the word heart nor the word mind quite captures it. I think the best translation for citta is psyche. Psyche really includes that whole realm, but not many uh, English translators use that for citta. So at any rate, citta does include 
the kinds of instructions Annie gave the other morning, moods, emotions, and states of mind. And you can get a flavor of that from the Satipatthana Sutta, where it's described like this, the beginning of it. How does a practitioner abide contemplating mind as mind? Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an aversive mind to be aversive and a mind without aversion to be without aversion. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. So one of the things you'll feel in this description is that the way the Buddha includes a balance of wholesome and unwholesome qualities. He almost always does that. When he's describing our experience, he doesn't usually just focus on one or the other, sometimes, but very often he'll point to both. So this foundation is pointing to the wholesome qualities of mind as well as the difficult or unwholesome. The unwholesome characterized by greed, aversion, and delusion. The wholesome characterized by non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. The Buddha often spoke in these kinds of negatives, but if you think about it, what what does non-greed mean? It means giving up or giving away. So renouncing or generosity. I like to think of it just in short as generosity. Non-greed is generosity. Non-aversion means we don't carry ill will. The opposite of ill will is loving kindness. So in short, I think of it as loving kindness. Non-delusion means we're seeing clearly, or you could say there's wisdom. So the wholesome states are made up of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Unwholesome states are composed of these roots of greed, aversion, delusion. The whole point of the path is to increase the wholesome states and decrease the unwholesome. This is the very definition of right effort in the Eightfold Path. And I think it's kind of amazing that we have the tools in this lineage. We have the meditative tools to develop any of these qualities to any degree that we want. This process is called in Pali, bhavana. It means mental development, development of heart and mind, cultivation of the wholesome. Sometimes it's translated as meditation But it really has this sense of we're actively developing these beautiful qualities. So any way that you want to shape your mind, which means to shape your life, there are practices to do that. If you want to go in the direction of wisdom, there's insight practice. If you want to go in the direction of love, there's the metta practice. If you want to go in the direction of stillness, there's concentration practice. If you want to go in the direction of joy, there's the practice of mudita, altruistic joy. So it's just beautiful that we have you know, all these possibilities to bring out the very most beautiful human qualities to whatever degree we want to develop them. And that's what we're doing here. We're actually developing all these qualities together. But if you like, at any point in your practice, you could pick one or two and go down that route for a while. The, the potential is unlimited. So I don't want to talk much more about wholesome states now just to say two things. One, notice them. Be mindful. Two, don't cling. Okay? Pith instruction. We'll talk more later. But I really want to talk tonight about the difficult states of mind, and there are two things we need to do here. One is to shift our attitude. Instead of resisting them, we need to become much more open and allowing. And this means on a moment-to-moment basis. It's not we decide tonight, oh, I'm going to be open to these things. We need to move in that direction every time they come. So this is something we need to keep learning and doing. Sometimes a difficult state comes and we have a judgment, oh, this shouldn't be happening. But it is happening, right? Someone commented, if we fight with reality, reality's going to win. This is reality. So we need to open to it, allow it to be the way it is. So a shift in attitude. The second is a greater understanding. We need to understand kind of the mechanism 
of these difficult emotions. We also need to understand their nature, their basic nature, which is, like all conditioned things, they're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, and they're not me or mine. They're impersonal. We all have all these states because they're part of the human package. So why claim it as I or mine? It's all of ours. It's part of being human. So we learn not to take it so personally. And as we see the impermanence, we see that we don't have to make them go away. They're going to go away. But there's one way you can make them stay. That's to resist them. So if we resist or suppress, we just push them lower, then they can hang around for a long time. But if you open and let these states come, they will come and they will also go because their nature is impermanent. So this is what we have to do in practice. We have to accept and we have to observe, you know, to learn what they're like. Okay, first step is knowing what we're feeling when we're feeling it. You can't sort of think through these things before they arrive. Oh, let's see, I think tonight I'll work out fear. It doesn't happen like that. You've got to work out fear when fear is present. You've got to relate to it in real time. So the first step is to know what we're feeling. And it's not learned in this culture. Jill said that this morning. Wouldn't it be wonderful if kids were taught to know what they're feeling? So we have a friend who's a Sangha member in California, longtime meditator, very devoted practitioner, who ran a preschool. So this means kids who are before kindergarten. So it means like three to five-year-olds. And she ran that preschool along Buddhist lines, basically because she wanted to teach kids meditation. She had a long waiting list, but one of the requirements to get in was the parents had to meditate also. Because she didn't want to just train the kids to be smarter than the grown-ups. She wanted the grown-ups to be along for the ride and support the kids in meditating. So she had these three, four, and five-year-olds, and she was teaching them to meditate. Well, I don't know if you've worked with three, four, and five-year-olds, but you don't just say, sit still and watch your breath. That doesn't work. They'll be bouncing all over. So she got very creative. So the first thing she would do is teach them yoga. And they liked that. You know, they liked moving their bodies around and stretching and rolling around on the floor. And then she'd kind of get them good and limbered up through the yoga. And then she'd have them lie down on their backs on the floor where they'd just been doing the yoga. And they were kind of relaxed. And she'd lead them into a visualization. And the visualization was this. Okay, you're a big lake. Feel how big your lake is. It just stretches all around you. And you're the water. Now, in this water, there are a lot of different fishes swimming. I want you to notice all the fishes that are swimming through your lake. And of course, by the way, water is an ancient symbol for consciousness. So the kids relate on that symbolic level. Notice all the fishes that are swimming through your lake and just let them swim. There's a happy fish, there's a sad fish, there's a mad fish, there's a kind fish, there's a lonely fish, there's a joyful fish. Just let all those fishes swim through. And so she'd guide them in this, you know, for several minutes at a stretch, and they had fun with it. So after one of the meditations, she asked them, well, how was that? And this five-year-old boy said, "Um, that was great. You know, I could let all the fishes swim through, except... I couldn't let the mad fish swim through. And she said, well, well, why not? Why couldn't you let the mad fish swim? He said, well, when you don't know you're the water, the mad fish makes you do things that hurt people. Five-year-old kid. So that's wisdom. So first, we have to practice knowing what we're feeling, what fishes are swimming in our water, in our awareness. And this is not as easy as it might sound. So story from my practice here. One of the three-month courses I was sitting, and I was not a new meditator. I was you know, 10 years into practice. 
And I was sitting in this hall. And then when the 8.15 sitting, I would end and I would go out and walk on the grass down below, down where the, some of the fruit trees had been planted since then. But there was a lot more grass back then. And I would go walk back and forth for the period, come back in here and sit for the next sitting, and go out and walk again. So basically every walking period, I was down walking on the grass down there. So I was about two weeks into the retreat. I'd been walking there every period for two weeks. 8.15 sit comes to an end. I go out the back door. I head for my walking space, and I'm being really mindful. Two weeks in, I'm being really mindful. Lifting, moving, placing. Walking slowly. Lifting, moving, placing. I get out the door. I look down to my path. There's somebody else there. I couldn't believe it. I start going, lifting, moving, placing. And I start thinking, what's that person doing there? Don't they know that that's my walking path and I've walked there every period for two weeks? Lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. I said, Did I cut in front of them in line this morning? Are they trying to play some kind of head game with me? <laughs> lifting, moving, placing. Oh, very present, right? And so I got down to the grassy area, and my place was taken, so I found another patch of grass to walk on, which to my great surprise worked just as well (laughs) as my own. And so I walked back and forth, started walking back and forth, lifting, moving, placing, but I was still sort of running, running on about this guy. And it took me 30 minutes into the walking period before I realized I'm angry. While I was caught in that, and I was telling myself the story about they were in the wrong place and it was my path and why didn't they see it? As long as I was running that story, I was totally bound up with being irritated at the person. As soon as I could recognize that I was angry, then I had a way to work. Oh, I know how to release anger. And I would kind of drop the story, feel it in my body, feel the mood of the anger, feel the sensations, and then very quickly it dissipated. But as long as I was involved in the story, it wasn't going anywhere. And so this points out a few things about working with these difficult emotions. If we have a belief about the situation, like mine was I'm right and they're wrong, it locks the emotion in. We keep telling ourselves the story, and every new sentence, like anger's like a fire, right? Every new sentence adds another log to the flame. I'm right, they're wrong. Basically saying it over and over. When I could drop the story and drop those thoughts, the fire wasn't being fed anymore. And what happens when an emotion isn't being fed? It just faded away. So basically, um, my attention was in the wrong place. The Buddha said this about the hindrances. It's kind of an interesting observation. It's tucked away in one sutta. He said, every hindrance is a case of unwise attention. We're putting our energy and attention in the wrong place. So where was I putting my attention? Into the person in the story. That was unwise because it just kept it going. What happened when I turned it to the emotion of anger itself? Poof. That was wise attention. So I think Brian said this the other morning when he was talking about giving instructions for the hindrances. Take the attention away from the situation that's causing the hindrance and put it on the hindrance itself. So when we come mindful of the hindrance or the emotion itself, that's when there's the possibility of its releasing. The other funny thing in this story is that I thought I was being really mindful. I was with lift, move, place like all the way. (laughs) And I was missing the most important thing that was going on which was this emotion of anger and all the thoughts around it. So this is kind of how hindrances happen. We feel like we're connected to the present moment, but they slip in under our radar. 
they get established in some viewpoint, some belief, some story. And the more we dwell on the story, the more we sustain that hindrance energy. Until at some point, you know, I think what finally woke me up was I was getting bored with it. Or it was uncomfortable or something. And then I was sort of forced to notice, oh, I'm angry. So this is delusion. The force of delusion is we don't notice what's happening to us. And this happens a lot with emotions. We don't see clearly exactly what emotion is catching us up. So the first step, when you're starting to feel something stirring, name the feeling. You know, I think Jill said this was a real kind of education for her to note the emotions. And that's the way it felt for me, too. I hadn't been taught how to recognize or name my emotions, but this practice made me do it. And so I would just keep exploring, what is that feeling that's there? Until I developed a pretty good vocabulary for the things that showed up. And then it was really, really helpful to know. Because if we don't know what we're feeling, it's difficult to release it. And the noting is helpful because um, there's something uh, that happens when we name an emotion I think Jill mentioned the neuroscience of it. What I feel is a sh- I feel a shift take place when I name an emotion. And part of what happens is there's not just the emotion, there's also the mindfulness. So in the middle of an unwholesome state, we're bringing in mindfulness, which is one of the most wholesome mind states we can bring in. And so we're not just with the anger. We're with the anger and mindfulness now. And mindfulness is what transforms it. There was also a study, which I think is really interesting. Um, They took a group of people from an anger management class. So people who had documented difficulty with anger. And they gave a bunch of different approaches for them to work with. One, they simply asked the people, every time they started to get angry, to note anger just to name it. Basic mindfulness practice, right? That turned out to be about as effective as any other strategy they worked with. And it showed a marked decrease in people's tendency to be angry over the course of the study. So it really does make a difference. So in these difficult states of mind, there are a few that I see again and again. And rather than just in myself and in practitioners, Rather than just tell you what they are, I'm going to have you guess. So one of the things, I find this really curious. Difficult states of mind are always connected with time. That means with past and future. I never quite realized that until I started to look at it. When we're caught in difficult emotions, we're caught in time. Beautiful states of mind can just be totally in the present. Love is in the present. Compassion is in the present. Insights in the present. Peace is in the present. Concentrations in the present, and so on. But difficult states of mind are connected to time, means past and future. So imagine an axis that's running past on this side, on your left, to future on your right. That's a time axis. Then we're going to bring in another axis, which is pleasure and pain. And we're going to run that from the bottom. This is the y-axis, for those of you with a math background. We're going to run that from the bottom on up. Pain down at the bottom, pleasure at the top. Now we have four quadrants, right? You loved your seventh grade algebra class, didn't you? I know, I did. So let's take the quadrant over here, which is pleasurable things that are in the future. What emotion do you feel for pleasurable things that are in the future? Craving, Craving, wanting, desire, right? So that's one of the big one of the big ones. What about um, painful things that are in the future? Worry, fear. That's one of the big ones. What about pleasant things that were in the past? 
But in the past means it's not coming back. (laughs) Grief, right? You lost something. Grief or sadness, another of the big ones. And then painful things that were in the past. And think about this especially in relation to people. Anger. Anger, resentment. Desire. Fear. Sadness. And anger. These are four of the big ones that come often. So I want to talk about all of those. And one variation on the the anger one is when it's toward ourself, it turns into self-judgment. So I want to talk a little bit about working with um, all of these. So let's start with uh, desire. In working with all of them, what we want to do is notice three aspects. Feel it first, feel it in the body. If it's a strong emotion, it's going to express itself somewhere in the body. So by grounding the attention there, you can stay, you can prolong the contact with the emotion. Second thing to look at is the flavor of that emotion. So every mood has a different flavor in the mind. Happiness feels different than regret. You know, shame feels different than compassion. So get familiar. It's a mental kind of flavor, that one. Get familiar how it tastes, how the emotion tastes. Get familiar with that. And the third is these difficult emotions do have some kind of underlying belief or story, like my belief that I was right and they were wrong. So look for the belief. The belief props up the emotion. It sustains it. It feeds it. It keeps it going. So look at these three areas, and we'll go through them with the um, examples. So desire, something that wants a pleasant experience to happen sometime in the future. This can come up a lot on retreat. You know, you're here, but what you really want is to be at home or be with friends or to have a nice meal somewhere or go out, you know, to a party, something like that. So these things pop up and can take our attention. So looking at the kind of nature of desire, what we see is that the object that's coming up is some degree, to some degree comforting. We remember, oh, there's pleasure in life. And when we're in a difficult space in retreat, that's kind of appealing. Oh, there is pleasure. But it's mixed because we don't have it now. So with desire, there's always this gap between the pleasure that could be and the reality of sitting in the hall, you know, with your butt hurting. (laughs) So that contrast leaves a gap of dissatisfaction. So desire always brings with it some dissatisfaction. Yeah, there's a pleasure out there, but it's not here now. So there's a frustration that's inherent in wanting so you can tune into that. You can, you can feel it. You, never, you notice that you never want what you already have. Do you sit there wanting a hand at the end of your arm? No. <laughs> we want what we don't have. And that's why it's frustrating. So I was teaching in Italy one time a number of years ago. It was so much fun working with Italian yogis. Because as you might imagine, they're, they're very, I found them, to be very fluent with their emotions. They, they kind of knew their emotions well, and they, they were open in talking about them. It's a lot of fun to work with them. Um, so there was this one young man, came in for an interview a few days into the retreat, and I said, how's it going for you? He said, I don't want to be here. I've heard that before. But I said, why did you come? He said, well, this is August. It's our holiday month. You know, we we had free time. Um, A bunch of my friends were going to the Caribbean. And they invited me to go, you know. And I thought, oh, beautiful blue waters and swimming. And, you know, that'd really be a lot of fun to go there. I said, why didn't you go there? He said, there were no more tickets left. (laughs) So I came on this retreat. So I can understand why he was having a little trouble adjusting. (laughs) 
So I just suggested to him that he wasn't unhappy with the retreat itself. Maybe he was unhappy because he wanted the Caribbean. And that if he didn't want the Caribbean all the time, maybe he'd be happy in the retreat. I said, take a look at that. Maybe that's a possibility. Maybe it's the wanting that's making your time here so miserable. So he went away, meditated some more, came back in a couple of days. He said, I think you're right. (laughs) It was the wanting that was stirring me up. When I let go of the Caribbean, the retreat was fine. I'm totally settled in. I'm good with it. So desire has this quality. It kind of uh, creates dissatisfaction for us when there doesn't need to be. So on the retreat, the that feeling of gap may come about daily life as you settle into the retreat. It comes more and more about retreat experience. So that what we're wanting is the meditation we had two days ago or in the last retreat. We want a special experience or we want that state of calm or stillness or peace or bliss or love or whatever. So start to notice when the desire is coming in. Investigate that quality of inherent quality of dissatisfaction that is with it. Sometimes mild, sometimes big, you know, depending on what, what is wanted. And in relation to meditation experience, see where your thoughts have been going. Sometimes it's the thoughts that will tell you what the desire is for. It's easier to let go if you can see, oh, it's for that same experience I had two days ago, experience of being really settled, open. It's a little easier to let go. I sometimes recognize that the desire is happening in meditation by sort of leaning forward with some tension in the body. Like I'm just trying to reach out for the next moment to be different. So tune into that tension. See if you can see what it's about. And if possible, let go. So the next area... um, I talked about his anger, but of course, the more general category is aversion, which has a lot of different flavors. Um, Ill will, anger, blame, hatred, impatience, irritation, um, resentment, despair, resistance. So it could be a lot of different flavors of this. And how does it feel in the mind when aversion is present? Start to tune into this. Often there's a kind of burning quality. So with anger in particular, talk about anger as one form of aversion. I feel anger a lot around my shoulders and neck and head. I feel like energy's coming up and getting constricted there. And there's a kind of burning, intense, hot quality that comes across with the anger. So feeling it in the body, contraction, tight, burning, energized, all those are the bodily sensations with anger. The mood is also kind of burning, and the thoughts are usually, I'm right and they're wrong. So get familiar, that's kind of what makes up anger. That's what's there. And as we go on again about they're right or they're wrong and I'm right, we add more Uh, fuel to the flames. So you can just feel how that fire keeps burning the more we think about it. So don't force yourself to try and change it at this point, but get familiar with it. This is the mechanism of anger, and we want to really understand it before we try to get rid of it. So understanding how it gets created, how it gets fed, how it gets prolonged, and the belief that that underlies it. One of the tricky things with anger is when we say, I'm right and you're wrong, that may be true. You know, we might be perceiving clearly someone's unskillful actions. But if we keep running that thought again and again with that kind of indignation, we're going to keep... uh, adding fuel to the fire. And how does that feel? Not so good. So I was doing a metta retreat here one year, long six-week period of metta. And I was 
very end of the practice and, and really getting into the metta and good feelings. And it so happened that at that time, my difficult person was also on the retreat. This is someone I'd known for a few years. And the last year had been especially difficult. So they were on the retreat, and every time we'd cross paths, I'd sort of start going, think about what they did and how they acted and how they spoke to me, and the anger would just start coming, coming, coming. And I would spin out for like 30 minutes with it. Not only lose my metta phrases, I would definitely lose my metta feeling (laughs) altogether. And then finally, I started to realize, well, this is really painful. It's really painful to be going into this anger again and again. And to tell you the truth, the thing that made me let go of it, and let go of the memories and the blame and all that was stoking the fire, was how painful it was. So again, that's why it's really, really helpful to let yourself feel the fullness of anger when it's there. And feel the pain of it. Even if I was right, and in some ways I still think I was. (laughs) It didn't benefit me to keep going over it. It just hurt more. So that was what let me let go. So it's possible to know that somebody did something unskillful without burning ourselves up in the process. In the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, it said that when we're angry at somebody, it's like we want to pick up a hot coal to throw at them. But first we pick it up and it burns us. The other way anger is described is that we drink poison and hope somebody else gets sick. (laughs) Doesn't work. So the other other side of working with anger. The Dalai Lama used to visit with uh, refugees who escaped Tibet. After the occupation, when he fled in 1959, when someone managed to escape and come to India, if they came to Dharamsala, he would meet with them. And he would hear their stories and the difficulties and often break down in tears at hearing their accounts. So one year, it was a monk whom he had known when he was still in Tibet, and he'd left in 59. And it turned out this monk had been imprisoned for 20 years. His crime was being a monk, being a Buddhist monk. A lot of Buddhist monks and nuns were imprisoned for that crime. And... um, when he came over and met with the Dalai Lama, he said, uh, yeah, he, f- he felt when he was in prison, he felt that he was in danger. And the Dalai Lama said, um, were you in danger of being tortured? I could really understand that. And he said, uh, no, I was tortured. I was in danger of becoming angry. But I didn't. The Dalai Lama said he had to reevaluate his opinion of that monk. He was a much more developed practitioner than he had remembered or imagined. So this sort of practice is possible with the difficult emotions. It's not a beginning practice. That's a really advanced practice. But it shows a human possibility that that we all have. So in relating to anger... Can we get to the point of just feeling the feeling and not continuing to tell the story? Feel it in the body, feel the flavor in the mind. And if we can, that's what sets the condition for the emotion to show its impermanence, to decay because it's not being whipped up further. So variation on um, anger is directed to ourself, self-judgment where you know, we feel we're not good enough. Either we've made mistakes or we've failed in people's expectations. We've gotten the message that we're not good enough or smart enough or good-looking enough or something. And sometimes these messages have come from parents, sometimes they've come from teachers, sometimes they've come from our siblings or our peers. 
but we take it in and we take it to heart. You know, they're criticisms. And the other thing that can happen is if you're part of a group that's been marginalized in the society, you may have gotten the message from very early on in your life that you're not as good as everybody else, that you are, in effect, a second-rate person. And this leaves an imprint because people in these marginalized groups are often getting this message from early, early days of childhood, at least kind of early adolescence. So it could be from uh, racism. It could be from homophobia. It could be from gender discrimination. But this message goes out that if you're not conforming to the cultural ideal or the norm in the dominant culture, then you're not as valuable as those people. So the message you know, can be overt, like direct racism, or it can be a little more subtle. Implicit bias communicates the same message. And if it goes in at an early age, it can go in deeply. And so one can grow up with this a kind of internalized sense of being second rate or second class. It's very painful. And then when people come into meditation, that which has been carried maybe a little subconsciously can really start to come to the surface. Same thing if the message has come from parents or teachers or other sources. You may have been taught that you're not good enough in these different ways. And as you sit in meditation, this sense of not enough starts to come through. So whether it's come from a societal message directed to a marginalized group, or whether it's come as an individual message to you from people around you, this is something that comes up often in retreat. And many, many people feel it. The Dalai Lama used to meet with groups of um, Western Dharma teachers uh, in Dharamsala. He'd invite like 20 Western Dharma teachers over at a time. I never got to go, but I know a bunch of people who did get to go. And he'd just discuss with them over a couple of days issues that they found were important coming up in their teaching. So one year they asked him how to work with this feeling. Let's call it lack of self-worth or sense of worthlessness or inferiority. He didn't understand what they were asking about. He didn't have any experience of it. He didn't know about it in Tibetan culture. Because children there, apparently, are loved from very early on. Children are really dearly prized in Tibetan culture and get such a, you know outpouring of love from the extended family they grow up feeling valued and worthwhile. Dalai Lama could not understand what this feeling was about. And so he went around to all the teachers and he said, have you felt this? Yes. Have you felt this? Yes. And virtually every teacher there said they had felt this kind of lack of self-worth in their upbringing and had to work with it in Dharma practice. He was, he was shocked. So... The first thing to do with this is we have to recognize it because if we don't, it operates subconsciously. It's not something that stands out so strongly, you know, like anger or fear. It's more subtle and underlying it. So as it comes up, we need to start to appreciate how it makes us feel. And we can feel it as a bodily feeling once we we get in touch with it. I remember going through a period working with this. It felt like a weight on my shoulders that I had to support because I I wasn't good enough to relax. I had to kind of support this thing. And we can work through it a lot. You know, this is one of the things that really can lift through sustained meditation. One of the most effective tools in working through it is loving-kindness practice. Partly for ourselves, because we need to soften our attitude toward ourself and our acceptance of ourself but also toward people that we really do like and care about because that brings the metta out a lot more clearly and strongly. And when metta starts to come alive in our hearts, genuine metta coming alive in our hearts, we really know the inner 
a quality of goodness. And then we trust ourselves. You know, there's not much better than metta in the human experience. And so when we feel that in ourselves, we really trust in our own goodness. We trust we're capable and equal. You know, just to talk about how widespread this is, I recently finished reading Michelle Obama's memoir. It's called Becoming. It was really a beautiful book. And she talked very honestly about um, her trials and her learning in this area. Because she grew up, you know, she was a young black girl in a not particularly um, prosperous section of Chicago and got all the messages from, you know, television and newspaper and movies and so on that she wasn't in the privileged class, the favored class, the dominant class or whatever. So everything she took on, she had this deep inner self-doubt, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be smart enough? Fortunately, she had loving parents. I think that was a big, big help for her. And she just kept going forward. So she managed to get accepted into one of the best high schools in Chicago. She went from there to Princeton, where her brother had gone on a basketball scholarship. She got admitted to Harvard Law. And then she joined this really prestigious law firm in Chicago, which is where she met Barack. And then things really changed. But at every step of the way, she had to keep answering this question, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? And she kept meeting it and facing it and growing, you know, to become the amazing person that uh, she, you know, she kind of became um, in front of our eyes in the last phase of her, of her growth. So one of the other um, difficult emotions for us to deal with is sadness. And this one's tough because often we feel with sadness or grief, it can feel overwhelming. And there's, there's a worry sometimes, oh, if I open to this, I'm going to drown in it. It's going to take me over, and I'm never going to be able to get out of it. It just feels so big, I don't feel I can open to it. So in, with emotions like that, you may need to take it one bite at a time, one step at a time. Go into it part way, come back out, recenter nature, meditation, anchor, spaciousness, walking, whatever, and then go back in a little further. But this idea that it will overwhelm me and I'll never get out isn't true in my experience of things with meditators. So one of the processes that I had the privilege of observing was a parent, this is out in California, who lost a child to suicide. And I think that's one of the greatest losses uh, that a human being can, can go through in this life. And she came to meditation and to retreats, uh, partly in order to heal from that level of grief. So observing her kind of year after year as she kept coming back to retreats and hearing about her reports of what was happening for her, it was amazing to see that over a period of years, she came out of that grief. That grief really healed for her. And now she's leading a support group for other parents who have lost children through suicide because she knows firsthand that healing is really possible. So she's a wonderful support now. And that came through her willingness to go step by step through that level of grieving and sadness. So the last one I want to talk about is fear. And um, this is my personal favorite because it's the one that I worked with a lot 
in the early years of my practice, very familiar with. So one of the things I noticed with fear is when it came up, I would get scared. (laughs) I would get scared of the fear, right? Fear's here. I don't want this. That's a scary thing to go into. Fear can be really unpleasant, really one of the most unpleasant um, emotions of all. So I had to look at that fear of fear. And what the story was for me was something like, uh, is this moment bearable? Yeah, just barely, but this moment's bearable. But in the next moment, something really disastrous is going to happen, and that's not going to be bearable. So that's what the fear of fear was about. So I said, well, you know, maybe that's not true. My teachers are telling me to open to it and just feel it. So little by little, I just trusted them, and I tried that. And the way in for me was through my body. So they gave me the same instruction, feel the sensations, and then feel the flavor in the mind of the fear. Notice the story, let it go. You know, my story was the next moment's going to be unbearable. Let that go. So coming in to feel the sensations of fear, my stomach was clenched. There was this kind of fluttery energy up my uh, abdomen, and I just felt light and ungrounded. But it was, it was really unpleasant. The fear was strong. It was really unpleasant. But I started to ask myself the question, can I bear these sensations in the present moment, right now? Can I bear it? And I could. That really opened a door for me. I found I could bear the experience of fear. Still wasn't pleasant. I wasn't like rolling out the welcome mat. But I found I could bear it. And as I opened to the sensations and I could move, well, okay, what's this emotion really like? What's the bare mental nature of fear? And it's tricky. It's, fear is so tricky because the inclination is moving away. Fear says, get me away from this. It's too scary. So trying to get close to the raw emotion of fear is going against the very impulse of fear. The closer you get, the more it says, don't get close to me. Not safe here. So it kept kind of trying to push me out. But then I got closer and closer and I could open to the bare experience of the emotion. And so then one of my teachers said something like, well, you know, if you really accept something, you're going to say, it could be with me the rest of my life and I don't mind. So I said, could I be with fear the rest of my life? And the answer came back really clearly. No way. (laughs) I can't do that. I'm not ready to do that. If I was with fear for the rest of my life, I wouldn't enjoy anything again. You know, I wouldn't enjoy music or a sunset or anything. So I said, no, I can't do that. But then I started to see if I was holding myself back from fear, I was still creating this distance. And that was going to make the fear hang around still stirred me up. So I said, okay, I could either be agitated the rest of my life or I could take a risk and maybe find some peace. So I went for peace. I said, okay, fear, if you want to stay around the rest of my life, it's okay. And I really meant it. I really meant it. And when I made that move, and I really meant it, something broke in the fear. It lost some kind of hold that it had had over me. You know, it's kind of like its spine cracked a little bit. And I went through a phase in my practice where fear was coming and going, and I really didn't care. I didn't care if it went. I didn't care if it stayed. Didn't care if it arose. Didn't care if it passed away. And then for me, that was kind of the the turning point in relating to it. So fear can still arise for me. And sometimes I have to remind myself, it's okay. It's really an old acquaintance, an old friend. Um, But it really is okay with me now. So I was interested to read this account from, there's a Thai teacher named Ajahn Liam Ajahn Liam was a disciple of Ajahn Chah. 
And when Ajahn Chah died, he named Ajahn Liam as his successor. So Ajahn Liam is now the abbot of Ajahn Chah's old monastery, which is Wat Bapong in northeast Thailand. Ajahn Liam apparently is also an arahant, a fully awakened being. There's a beautiful biography, uh, has some autobiography and reflections, and he kind of recounts his awakening. It's inspiring. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But he's a very special being, for sure. So at some point, um, he was in conversation with another abbot. And the abbot asked him, you know, like one practitioner might to another, what was the hardest thing in your practice? And Ajahn Liam said, I would have to say that fear was the hardest thing for me. And then he paused. He said, but just to say that it was hard isn't quite right. I would have to say that it was a worthy opponent. Working with it brought about the growth of a lot of wisdom. That's what I would say about my working with fear also. I had to go really deep in order to accept fear, you know, just the way it was, and to open to it that completely. I had to find a kind of um, strength and courage and wisdom I didn't even know I was capable of. But once I found that understanding and that strength, I felt I could work with any emotion. So that learning wasn't just about fear. It was about any emotion that might come. I found out I could be with it. So what looks like a disaster in your practice may turn out to be your life lifeboat. It may turn out to be the thing that really fuels your liberation and your awakening and your growth in the Dhamma. So don't mind it. Don't mind it. We all have this potential of tremendous growth through really opening to these you know, really challenging areas. In the beginning, you think, well, I'm going to wake up by getting rid of confusion. Right? There's confusion on the one hand, which is our agitated state of mind, and there's awakening, which is wise, and peaceful, and compassionate. And you might think, well, when I get rid of this stuff, then I'll be over here in awakening. But what has to happen is we have to wake up in the middle of our difficulties. We have to bring the awakened mind or discover the awakened mind in the middle of confusion. Let's not get rid of confusion first, then awakened mind shows up. It's find awakened mind in the middle of confusion. And this is possible. This is what we're practicing for. So I want to just close with a quotation, a poem from uh, Rilke, the German poet, Reiner Maria Rilke, uh, from a little book called The Book of Hours. He wrote this when he was in his 20s, some of his most accessible poetry. And he was uh, traveling around mostly Germany, but I think other parts of Europe, visiting churches and kind of getting very inspired um, and spiritual. And this poem is called God Speaks to Each of Us. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your memory, go to the limits of your longing, embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You'll know it by its seriousness. Now, give me your hand. So let's just sit for a minute together, please.
let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.